Hello and welcome to episode 343 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we're coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. Well, the reviews are in. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> on our 2022 Seattle Sports Year in Review podcast and bold predictions. And they unanimously have agreed with you. Festivus came early for the listener because they got a lot of problems with me. What did I tell you? That performance in the Seattle Sports Year in Review podcast and your Seattle Sports figure of the year was a truly Ichiro on the Mariners-like performance. <laughs> we were making don't, fun of you. Don't, don't press your luck here. A number of people have said begrudgingly agree with Tristan. I don't about. normally agree with Tristan, but on this one I have to agree with him. But... It's weird that you would not normally agree with me because I have every perspective. So <laughs> you have <laughs> not on each other. You you only have one true. single take I, on that. I one. will say my perspective on each was more divisive than I thought it would be. I, I I did not read the room properly in that one. In the same way, well, I I mean, it wasn't about reading the room. I'm not trying. I'm not giving these takes for the fan appreciation here. But you're not doing but, fan service. We were making fun of you earlier today in my household. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Marco about what typically happened, and I was, <laughs> I was like, I feel like you know he probably got a biased perspective on the issue, and now ESPN's Kevin Pelton to unveil the winner for the <laughs> Oscar Best Picture, <laughs> and the winner of Best Picture at the Oscars for 2022 is Movies. <laughs> No, that's not that's not a fair comparison. It's like best actor. Everybody in the cast. La La Land. Uh Marco even got in on it. Marco got in on it and he was he was like today's weather is weather. <laughs> so I hope that you're here to deliver more of your great takes that you've had. My signature, my perfect signature, cap to unwilling a to excellent twenty twenty two on the Pelton cast. Is the this is not the last podcast of twenty twenty two? I guess we'll have another one next week. There will, yes. Oh God, we we more. released the uh, Seattle Sports Year in Review much earlier than than is typical. But you've got you just had to get you know, those takes w- off. <laughs> you've got some time still to listen to that one. It's not as time sensitive as this one, which obviously relates to uh, sporting events to be played over the next week here. Yes. So sports. let's get into <laughs> <laughs> a toast to toasts. The sports figure of the year is sports. <laughs> That's not so far off from what you did last year for the record. There's a whole concept behind it. I didn't just choose a, a team. Con- but it was, yours was unprecedented. There was you a whole chose concept. a curse last year also. Don't act like you chose a sports figure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you chose seventy five percent of a concept, and then twenty five percent of a take you wanted to get on. God, I thought of a of a twenty five percent one for this year too. I can't even remember what it was though. I thought of it like twenty minutes ago. It was that bad that I instantly forgot it. 
<laughs> Many people wish you had forgotten last year's 25% as well. Well, let's get into what I'm drinking this week from our friends at Lucky Envelope Brewing. It is their gingerbread cream stout. Forget cookies. Santa will want a pint of this sweet spice-filled gingerbread cream stout on Christmas Eve. Our rich roasty cream stout base was brewed with gingerbread spices, vanilla, lactose, and real blackstrap molasses to create this quintessential holiday treat. Okay. Uh, We begin this week remembering former Washington State and Mississippi State coach Mike Leach, who died Tuesday at age 61 after reportedly suffering a heart attack the previous Sunday. Leach spent... uh, Eight seasons in Pullman with the team going 55 and 47 in his tenure, highlighted by an 11 and 2 finish in 2018. Cougars have appeared in six bowls under Leach, including each of his last five seasons after going eight years without a bowl appearance before his arrival. So, certainly thinking of his family and everyone who played and coached with Mike Leach over the years, which is an incredible swath of the college football landscape, given the incredible impact that he and the Air Raid offense had on what we know is modern college football. All right, as we get into the toasts, we start with Damian Lillard, who passed Clyde Drexler to become the all-time leading scorer for Hashtag our Blazers on Monday in Oklahoma City. This was pointed out to me on Twitter earlier in the day by a friend of the pod, Mike Acker. A, a very appropriate place for Damian Lillard to set that record if he wasn't going to do it at home in Portland. He talked about how much it meant, certainly, to knock the Thunder out of the playoffs with his series winning shot in 2019. That at, After making that, he talked about that? Yeah, over the summer, remember there was the podcast where he talked about this was for Seattle. Not in this moment right now, though. That was no, previously. no, not the not the scoring record in Oklahoma City, which was <laughs> unfortunately in a game the Blazers lost because Shea Gilgis Alexander uh, one upped Damian Lillard's game tying shot with like three point two seconds left by making the winner at the buzzer. I'm honestly so. a little surprised that it took Dame this long to be the Blazers scoring leader considering the way that scoring happens in modern times and we did it in i don't i don't have the exact number off the top of my head but it was many fewer games it's funny because i think clyde Drexler's career to us lasted like or at least to me as somebody who wasn't paying that much attention to basketball before like 93 like clyde Drexler to me basically played three seasons at least with the blazers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he played half his career with the Houston Rockets in your yeah. mind. Uh, he played 867 games, which remains the all-time most in Portland franchise history. Dame is fourth at 730. So 137 fewer games. Uh, do we have points per game here on basketball reference leaders? We do. Dame is at 24.7 points per game. Clyde is fifth on this list at 20.8 points per game. I, it would be too obscure for you to have any chance at Pelton Cast Trivia of getting the three players who have averaged more points per game. Averaged than, more points per game. Than, than Clyde Drexler. Can you give in, me an era? Uh, one of them is in the like the inaugural years of the team. Which, like I Jeff think they'd Petrie be, or something? That, wow, well done. You're remembering the jerseys in the arena. And then two of them are in the 80s. In the 80s? Maurice Lucas? No. no, no, he's not even in the top 10. I mean, he wasn't a big time scorer. It's it's players that 
like neither I, one of them I'm not even sure you would know one of them you definitely would not associate with the Blazers especially because of the fact that he did play into the later 80s on a different team I don't I don't Kiki Vandaway there you go that that was he's number two all time at 23.5 points per game it's funny he, I'm like terrible about doing this with the Mariners and the Seahawks and shit yeah somehow Portland you're pulling out Kiki Vandaway the other is Sydney Wicks I don't think you're ever gonna get that oh, yeah, one I don't think I was getting Sydney Wicks I guess Sydney Wicks was 70s not 80s anyway yeah, so. that's what threw me off. Yep. yep. I'm surprised yep. that B-Roy wasn't a little bit higher. B-Roy on that list is seventh. LaMarcus Aldridge is sixth. CJ McCollum is eighth. I would have guessed Kel- one of those players would have been the Kelvin best. Nat was who I was actually thinking of in the eight. It was the other 80s score that they had at forward. And then Bill Walton is 10th. <laughs> so there you go. All right, continuing our toasts. Two UW wide receiver Rome Adunze and guard Jackson Kirkland, both who were chosen third team AP All-American. The AP also made three picks for FBS Comeback Players of the Year, a group that included both Michael Penix Jr. coming off of injury and also former UW edge rusher Leatu Latu now at UCLA as he was able to come back from his medical retirement. That's actually uh, next, kind of a cool story. I want to hate. Oh, yeah. I want to hate. Don't get me wrong. But that's a pretty cool story. It was an awesome story. And yeah. UW's doctors wouldn't clear him to play. So glad he was able to return safely at UCLA and very successfully, uh, as we talked about. As long as he's healthy. I mean, again, played. being able to play one season healthy is not necessarily the same as having a healthy, long career. But if he's wanting to take that risk and there were doctors who are obviously good doctors who are willing to clear him, I think it's a pretty cool story. Yeah. All right, next up to Freddie Montero, who will be back with the Sounders for 2023 after re-signing last week. Montero is entering his seventh season in Seattle after being part of the original MLS Sounders from 2009 through 2012, returned in 2021, and thanks to that second stint, remains the club's all-time leading scorer with 76 goals across all competitions. Hello. And then lastly, Jeff Petrie is number. (laughs) Yeah, Jeff Petrie is number two. It's actually a bunch of guys from the USL era. (laughs) And the NASL. Uh, Lastly, to the Kraken, Shane Wright. Uh, We mentioned that he'll be playing for Canada at the IIHF World Junior Championships. He will captain the team starting later this month. There we go. And I thought you were going to boldly predict him as your Seattle sports figure of the year. (laughs) Went with the Sounders. (laughs) All of the Kraken. (laughs) Oh boy. You won't be able to pick them again though. That's the thing. <laughs> uh you don't have a coach's corner. The, there was no practice this week, right? Well, certainly not with the uh with the snow. No, no practice this week. I was trying to think if we talked after last week and we had uh Yeah, th- this is my time to do a lot of research, uh to get after it, to game plan. Um, a lot of a lot of charts and things like that before we get back at it in January. All right, yeah, really on the grind. Yep, with your coaching career. Well, as we get into the roundup, first off, a farewell to Adam Frazier, who signed with the Orioles after one season with the Mariners. Frazier was a consistent presence in the Mariners lineup, playing 156 games, but posted a career low 6.12 OPS last season after being acquired in trade from Pittsburgh or from San Diego, I should say. The Mariners have already replaced him at second base by adding Colton Wong via trade. So uh, outfield market still slow to develop. No updates there on Mariners free agency. Yeah, and you can definitely say Adam Frazier was a Mariner. (laughs) At some point in some let's remember some guys, Adam Frazier. When you're remembering some guys, you file Adam Frazier away. I mean, mean, Adam Frazier. 
was part of my 2022 Seattle Sports Figure of the Year. There we go. That is Seattle Sports Figure of the Year, Adam Frazier, to you. Thank you. All right, Seattle Kraken finished up their road trip. Can we get a a toast to also Argentina and their Italian star, Leo Messi? (laughs) Can you talk about how many people have told you that you look like Leo Messi over the course of this World Cup? It it has been, that's really my coach's corner. Did I tell you about that? Did I talk about that on coach's corner last week? I don't think so. There was a parent of a player who came over after practice. This is my coach's corner. This is it. And she was just like, do you watch soccer? And I was like, I was like, yeah. And I was like, Leo Messi. And she was like, <laughs> you look so much like him. And she was like, we need to take a photo so I can send to my family to show them how much you look like Leo Messi. <laughs> and I was like, ah, okay. We ended up not taking the photo, thankfully. Uh, but she was going on about it a lot. And I was like, yes, yes, I know. I, I get it. Uh, yes, a lot. It has been happening every single day. You but jumped that, much more onto the Argentina bandwagon than ever before, I think, in part because of that. I absolutely did not. In fact, I resent this insinuation because I've not jumped on to any sort of bandwagon because Leo Messi and I might look alike. Leo Messi and I look alike. Which is why I'm on the Argentinian bandwagon. This is a going back to Leo Messi and I having shared family heritage, not necessarily <laughs> personally, but have having the that same heritage in Italy. That's why I'm cheering for Argentina. You understand what I'm saying? I a, do. A win for Argentina is the same, is not the same, is the next best thing to a win for Italy. Italy wasn't in the World Cup at all. So you didn't root for Argentina in 2018 that I recall. In 2018, if you'll recall, I did not care at all. I could not tell you about a single match that happened. I do feel like this this World Cup maybe had a bigger impact than that one. Or it might have been that I just personally wasn't paying attention. I think the fact that the U.S. was in the World yes. Cup changed was, it, the perspective here. It was a very nice time to take those four years off when Italy, <laughs> Italy and the U.S. decided to skip that World Cup. But... Uh, so it's not not necessarily that I've started cheering for Messi because of that. It's that we have the shared common lineage on the coast of Italy, and that's why I'm cheering for Argentina. Wait, do we know that he's he's actually from the northern coast? You said his his family is from like a slightly southern coast. I forget. You're I forget the one who what looked this you. up. Oh, from the Marche region of Italy. So it's on it's on the east side of the coast. So opposite Genoa on the west side but also finding out that he has a child named Matteo yes and three children all boys three boys and and one of them named Matteo like the, I'm not doing this intentionally I'm just saying the way that Messi is what are his other children's names uh let me look that up the way that Messi is still Italian while living in Argentina is the way that I'm still Italian but living in Seattle Washington I don't know if I would necessarily describe Messi is living in Argentina at this point. I think probably most of his time in France. Tiago and Ciro are his other sons. Ciro? Yeah. Ciro. Spelled C-I-R-O? Yeah. This motherfucker's Italian! I'm sorry! <laughs> well, those Tiago could also be Spanish, I think. But you understand what I'm saying here. Yes. He, he has two children that have the names of other players on the Italian national team and none of the names on the Argentinian national team. I guess that is true, yes. So, I... 
The only thing that I suppose I could be slightly upset about is that Messi decided to play for the Argentinian national team and not the Italian national team. Don't think that was ever really a question. <laughs> I think he was one of the most sought after players by the time he was like 10 or whatever in the entire world. Well, I mean, not really. You know the story, right? Like, well, I mean, he was sort of, but Barcelona got him because of the fact that they were willing to pay for the uh, growth hormone that he needed, and his team in Argentina was not willing to pay for that. How old was he? That was at age, let's see, it was into th- at uh, 13, maybe? 12 or 13. He needed a growth hormone to get yeah. to 5'7"? He did, yes. I did it on my own. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Kraken finished their road trip at one and three, losing six two at Tampa Bay, three two at Carolina before returning and uh, before returning home over the weekend and finding their winning ways again. They beat Winnipeg three two on Sunday behind two goals in the third period with Jared McCann netting the game winner, and then on Tuesday dominated the St. Louis Blues. A 5-2 win. They jumped the LA Kings back in a second in the Pacific Division. Kraken will head up I-5 to Vancouver on Thursday. Still looking for their first win ever over the rival Canucks in that Derby match before taking five days off for the Christmas holiday. It's coming. it, It feels like it's a good time for it. Vancouver is struggling. Kraken playing well. All right, besides re-signing Freddie Montero, the other Sounders updates we have involve the schedule for 2023. MLS has announced its regular season schedule. The Sounders will open with their first two matches at home on February 26th against Colorado, March 4th against Real Salt Lake. Oh, you're going to want to have as many home matches as possible in Seattle, Washington, February and early March. Well, you know what? Better better a Colorado-Seattle game in February be played in Seattle than in Denver. I suppose so. Uh, We also finally have a location and date for the FIFA Club World Cup, which will be played in Morocco from February 1st through 11th. Seven teams will participate, including European champions Real Madrid, Brazil's Flamenco, and host Wydad Casablanca. The Sounders, the first MLS club ever to compete in the Club World Cup. Wait, so say those teams again? Uh, Real Madrid. Yes. Flamenco from Brazil. Okay. And... The host is uh, from Casablanca. Okay. So we still don't know if I think a few of the competitors is the uh, the a- Asian Football Conference. I do not believe has has chosen has had their their tournament to decide that yet. So they're gonna have to get on it. It's two months away, less than two <laughs> months away. I mean, this is gonna be intriguing at the very least. Oh yeah, I mean, especially if if the Sounders end up playing Real Madrid, like yes. there's no other situation where you would play Madrid in a semi-competitive, you know, game. Like, so I don't are know the Sounders Real MLS Madrid will have started by this point. You said it's February first through eleventh, right? No, they won't. This is basically their preseason training. Will okay. be these matches. The MLS starts late February. February twenty sixth. February twenty sixth. Okay, so this this is preseason. It's actually kind of ideal timing for the Sounders. Maybe not if you're trying to win this whole thing, but... When Real Madrid is like... I mean, I, I don't think Real Madrid is going to be competing for this as much as they want to be, but like, or as much as they could. Right. But Real Madrid is in mid-season form. Yes. So... And that's why they'll beat the Sounders. <laughs> that's, we're, we're putting the asterisk on it. Just like you if England had won the World Cup. Which, weirdly, no asterisk now. <clears throat> 
Uh, so, uh, a no, no, of... that, that World Cup counted the second that Messi uh, won the World Cup. <laughs> I thought it was the second that France eliminated England. No, it was still an asterisk when they had the handball for the tying goal. Uh, the blatant, extremely obvious handball, <laughs> which the, you still complain about in the chat. The great thing about the the British asterisk is that you never need to use it. <laughs> Only in 1966. <laughs> Only once. But no, it's good that they had one. I am so fine with England having one World Cup because it haunts them. The fact that they've won it before at all is what haunts them. If they had never won, they'd be like the U.S., and it would, they would just be so excited to make the elimination round. Well, they might be charming underdogs if they had never won, but yeah. Oh, that's it's... a good point. That's a good point. This way, The though, idea not... of calling any British person charming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that has a trait occasionally associated with, with British individuals. Hugh Grant. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen either of the Gallagher brothers. <laughs> I didn't say it was necessarily associated with them. All British people. <laughs> Do you feel like the Peltoncast is our vibe is similar to Oasis in that regard? I wish it was more. <laughs> I'm constantly one. trying. Every you, time you really make a really fun. bad Seattle sports figure of the year, I push closer and closer to. I guess I'm Liam Gallagher. <laughs> You're Noel. All right, a lot of uh, NWSL news, surprisingly, this time of the year. First, we have the sale of O.L. Reign's parent team, Olympic Lyonnais, completed to a group led by John Texter, an American who also owns a stake in EPL side Crystal Palace and Brazilian team Botafogo. Although majority owner Jean-Michel Allais sold his shares, the agreement includes him staying on as club president for the next three years, which should minimize the impact of the, on the reign of this ownership change. We'll see exactly what it means, though, going forward. Uh, last week, the NWSL and NWSL Players Association released results of their joint investigation into player abuse in the league. This was a broader one than the previous report from October by Sally Yates, which focused on sexual misconduct by coaches in the league. Among the coaches highlighted in the joint report was former OL Reign manager Fareed Benstidi, whose inappropriate comments on players' diets were described here in detail with a... Uh, uh, new comments from individuals involved. Uh, two individuals who spoke to the joint team, one of them from the U.S. Women's National Team camp and the other a former Rain staffer, contradicted then Rain CEO Bill Predmore's assertion that he was unaware of allegations of inappropriate comments by Ben Steedy made by U.S. Women's National Team star Lindsay Horan, who played for him in France. Credmore did subsequently specifically order Ben Steedy not to comment on players' diets or bodies, something he violated during the 2020 NWSL Challenge Cup, as was brought to management's attention. But the situation didn't come to a head until June 2021, when Ben Steedy criticized players' diets and weight in a team meeting, and was subsequently reported both to management and in a complaint to the NWSL. Notably, according to the report, Ben Steedy told players, if I see you... Uh, this is in parentheses here, eat snacks, I will kill you. <laughs> Predmore subsequently asked for and received Ben Steedy's resignation, but the press release announcing the move made no mention of inappropriate comments, which weren't made public until a Washington Post report later in 2021. From this joint report, quoting directly, one player told Predmore that they believed it would be it to be so important that the club's communications state that Farid had been terminated, not resigned. 
Predmore responded that the club's primary objective was to remove Ben Steady from the role as quickly as possible, and the question of resignation or termination was an important but secondary concern. He told the player that the club had provided Ben Steady the opportunity to resign as, quote, the most immediate and least risky path to removing him from the club. The player told Predmore she understood. Uh, Predmore and his wife, Teresa, stepped back from their operating roles with the rain in February. Uh, it's now Vincent Bertolot who's asking, acting as CEO on behalf of OL Group. The rain released a statement acknowledging the failures outlined in the report and outlining changes to enhance player safety, including launching an anonymous reporting system and hiring a director of HR and sports safety. So hopefully we don't have a story like this again. Lastly, The Athletic reported Tuesday that the Houston Dash will hire Rain assistant Sam Lady, who's been with the team since 2013 and served as the interim coach after Ben Steedy resigned in 2021 as their new head coach. All right, let's get into Utah basketball, starting with the women who uh, split their games in the Husky Classic. And it's a, a tough scene when you can't if, when you're the Huskies and you can't win the Husky Classic that you're hosting. But uh, they suffered a 66-54 loss Sunday against Liberty when they shot just six of twenty-nine from the field after halftime. Uh, Haley Van Dyke shot six of eighteen overall, kind of emblematic of the struggles. They did bounce back Tuesday in the second game of the Husky Classic, beating lowly SIU Edwardsville 71-40, I should say, behind a game-high 15 points and nine boards by Delia Daniels. Huskies wrap up non-conference play at 9-2, including their win over Wazoo in their Pac-12 opener. They'll have a week off for the holidays before opening conference play next week. Utah men's basketball. A little shaky last Tuesday against Cal Poly, but they did come from behind after going down by as many as 15 in the first half. They were still behind before a 15-2 run midway through the second half. The game was then tied at 60 with a little under three minutes to play before the Huskies ran off seven unanswered points to sold away an eventual 74-68 win. Keon Brooks Jr. had a career-high 30 points on 10 of 16 shooting in that one. Braxton Mia had six blocks to power the comeback. Nice. Huskies had a much easier time of things Saturday against lowly Idaho State going on a 19-2 run to end the first half and begin the second and going on to a 35-point win, their largest since February 2020. Huskies got extended minutes in that one from freshman Tyler Linhart, who has played sparingly this season in walk-on Kyle Lutonen, while no starter played more than 25 minutes. Keon Menetfield had 13 points off the bench to go along with seven assists, leading five Huskies in double figures. And where did Ken Palm have that game at? Was that like pregame? Was that a 35 point victory? No, I mean, it's pretty rare to see a 35 point pregame margin. So the Huskies did move up, I believe, six spots in the Ken Palm rankings after that one to number 89. I definitely think there's value to beating a team that badly, even if it's a game that you should have won, you should have won comfortably. Having a game where you could just feel good and really crush another team. It's something that, I mean, you mentioned this on Twitter that the Huskies have not done very often, no matter the opponent. No. So, I mean, having it happen if you're going to schedule a team like this, you got to beat them that badly, kind of. Yes. Having it happen here, I think, is pretty crucial. I was just thinking about, we'll talk about transfers with regards to Husky football. Um, and, and obviously, there's a whole season to play out for Husky basketball. But if this team can get to the point where they are a fringe NCAA tournament team, 
I do feel like given the resources, the infrastructure and the city around them, Seattle could be such a great destination for transfers. And obviously most of the roster is made up of transfers, but even at like a, a higher level transfers that would put them in a position to be an NCAA tournament team year after year or whatever, that I'm kind of fascinated to see how the rest of the season plays out, right? Is preseason is over now. Non-conference play is not over yet. We'll talk about that okay. in a second. Uh, <laughs> certainly not the preseason. Uh, Keon Brooks Jr., I mean, he is kind of a big-time transfer. I mean, he came from Kentucky. Like, it didn't work out at Kentucky. Like, we all thought he was going to be in the NBA by now. But he's playing quite well this season. You know, that 30-point that game highlighting it. And Braxton Mia, Braxton Mia playing as well as he did. I think that's a big part of it, is having transfers come and have success. And, yes. you know, going back to Terrell Brown Jr., the season that he had the year before, I think that that sets you up to be more successful. But you also need, what you need to do is layer those transfers on top of more returning players than the Huskies have been able to retain. And that's where, if they can keep Keon Menefield and Corin Johnson and those guys continue to develop that I think sets you up to be successful to to ha- have a core and to drop in two or three players yeah I mean that's what you know Gonzaga is generally doing it's not the whole team is transfers it's that you know they get a key transfer or two at the spots where they're weak I mean obviously you're playing at a wildly different level than Gonzaga but yeah Gonzaga doesn't play any difficult games in conference I understand <laughs> Uh, a, very, a very impressive win for Gonzaga against Alabama and Birmingham uh, this week as they avenged, got even. Those two teams played two semi-home semi home games in Ken Palm's parlance because Alabama had won in Seattle against Gonzaga last year. All right, but the speaking of teams from the state of Alabama, the competition level is about to get much stiffer for UW as compared to Idaho State and Cal Poly because on on Wednesday night, Hello. tomorrow as we record this, they host number 23 in the AP poll, number 24 in the coaches poll, Auburn. A return game of the Huskies going to Auburn in two, back in 2018. They, Auburn was supposed, originally supposed to come here in 2019, but it got delayed several years. Uh, Tigers making a West Coast swing of it. They played at USC on Sunday, lost 74-71 in LA. That was the second loss in three games for Auburn after an 8-0 start, the other coming against Memphis and Atlanta. They don't have any bad losses, really, but no marquee win yet either for Auburn. Their best was a 43-42 win. That's a That was a full game over Northwestern in the Cancun Challenge. Auburn lost two first-round picks in Jabari Smith Jr. and Walker Kessler. Who I, was Walker Kessler on the players to watch? I guess wow, he was. You said Walker Kessler, jazz. and I was like, "Wow!" Walker I had no Kessler idea he went to Auburn. Is is really good. he's playing much better than Jabari Smith Jr., who was the number two pick in the draft. Uh, he he was awesome tonight against Detroit. Jabari in the game I was Smith Jr. was the number two pick in the draft, or number three, I should say. What Chet team? was number two. Houston. I mean. Okay. Orlando was weighing Jabari versus Paolo Bancaro until the last minute. I so. remember Jabari, Jabari being the player who, I'm not surprised that I forgot that. Because during the NCAA tournament, I could not remember him at all. And it was just like, there's some guy who plays for Auburn that nobody seems to know anything about. Or whatever. <laughs> I knew a He's lot about He's not even Jabari. really that good on Auburn. No, he was very good. He was a better player in college than Paolo was. Interesting. Which is what it makes it so fascinating that Paolo has come into the NBA. I talked about this on the Hoop Collective earlier this week. 
uh, he is scoring more efficiently in the NBA than he did in college. I really think people undervalue how much college basketball and NBA basketball and football and college football and NFL football are two radically different sports. Like the idea that you can just take, it's definitely not a, you could just take success at one level, even versus high level opponents and say that you'll have success at the next level against high level opponents. Because I mean, there's still a decent predictive, predictive power. It's just Paolo and Jabari right now are at opposite, opposite extremes of the outliers in that regard, I would say. But there are different skill sets that are, I mean, you look at Treek Woolen, right? Like Treek Woolen is a player who is competing for rookie of the year or defensive rookie of the year or whatever, competing to make the Pro Bowl and was a fifth round pick. I mean, I don't think that's a different story because I think Tariq Woolen is more of a very rapid player development on, you know, kind of had the physical potential all along. I'm not, I'm not sure who the, the better NFL example would be at the moment. But yeah, I mean, like structurally, Duke didn't have very good floor spacing, so it wasn't a great setup for Palo last season. And Orlando has... And may- Orlando's, maybe that's it. You're, you're operating hot. within the confines of an offense and the players around you, and you have certain players around you, and you're played defensively in a certain way. And it's going to be different at Duke than it's going to be at Orlando. You know what a great game last night for the Magic? They lost by one point on Monday to the Hawks, but uh, our guy Markel Fultz had one of his probably his best game I think since coming back from the ACL injury. He had nice. 24 points on 11 of 19 shooting, 9 assists, 6 rebounds and scored a bucket to it was either give them the lead or pull them within one in the final seconds. Although Atlanta ended up hanging on in that one. Battle of UW guards DeJounte versus Markel Fultz. Yeah, DeJounte made the Markel made the go-ahead shot with 3.1 seconds left. DeJounte made two free throws with 1.1 seconds left to win it. Okay, so so Auburn is coming to town tonight as you're listening to this. Yeah, so a a little more on them. They do return from last year's team that was a number two seed in the NCAA tournament, starting guards Wendell Green and Katie Johnson. Uh, They also have Alan Flanagan playing a bigger role on the wing. He was coming back from injury last season, but uh, was really good as a freshman and is playing more like that now in his third year. Uh, They also added NBA prospect Chance Westry, a 6'6 wing, who has really struggled as an outside shooter in his somewhat limited action, missing all 14 of his three-point attempts. Uh, Also getting nice contributions from senior forward Jalen Williams, who's not that Jalen Williams, Uh is also not that Jalen Williams, Uh although he and the Jalen Williams, who's a center who played at Arkansas, were both in the SEC last year. They both spell their names the same way. It was very confusing to deal with before we even had the Santa Clara Jalen Williams in the mix. Uh, But the Auburn Jalen Williams is hitting 39% of his threes, which is very important because Auburn as a team shoots 29% from three-point range. So maybe there's a chance going up against this Mike Hopkins zone defense. I think, I mean, you have to look at this as an opportunity for the Huskies, obviously hosting the game. What do you think the crowd will be like? I know there's dealing with weather and it's right before Christmas. Yeah. And I don't know that people have quite realized like what a big game this is necessarily. So I mean, it's still Auburn, like. But I don't. But I don't know that people are aware, of, like thinking about it. How much do so. you think people are thinking about Husky basketball? That, right that I think is a big factor in it. Yeah, I'm just saying you have to start at a base level of not thinking about it. Uh, but this could be an opportunity for a second pretty good non-conference win 
that UW could have in in this you know sort of like non-conference period. It could yeah, be mean, one of the most impressive non-conference periods for Mike Hopkins at UW. Yeah, I mean they're eight and two coming into this. Obviously, have the one bad home loss to Cal. That's Baptist. their Arizona State on the road. <laughs> it really is. Can they can they do it against Cal Baptist at home? The answer for Cal Poly was yes. So I don't know if we're going to do chances of victory on this one, but uh, I it's given that it's in here and given Auburn's weaknesses, it's not inconceivable. It's definitely oh, think, in the I realm of I think the dogs are winning this game. Ken Palm gives them a 33% chance to win it. I think it's a better than 50% chance. Wow. I would go maybe 40%. I would be willing to go for that. You you put the Im- immovable force that is uh, UW's uh, super lucky three-point defense thus far against the, the, the wait, I guess it's the, the stoppable force against the immovable object that is Auburn's terrible three-point shooting. Those could combine in a, in a positive way for the Huskies. The real question is, can Braxton Mia avoid foul trouble? Yes. That is, that is the big thing. Although and Auburn is not, not a super big team after losing Jabari Smith Jr. and Walker Kessler. They, they start 6'10", Joni Broom at center. Still waiting on uh, Noah Williams' return. You haven't heard anything on that lately. All right, let's talk about UW football because a lot of comings and goings. This December period has been become like the the NCAA offseason begins while the there are still games is to be played. Open. It really does sound like, you know, a celestial thing. Like the portal comes open once a year. It begins on this date. It ends on this date. Uh, so the Huskies do are have do have several players who are coming back in addition to the ones who have already announced they were coming back. Zion Tupola, Fatui, and Braylon Trice jointly announced they will be returning to UW as edge rushers. Expect them to start at outside linebacker with Jeremiah Martin exhausting his eligibility after a great final season at UW. ZTF had kind of been thinking NFL along this season, but playing is basically the third guy in that rotation with Trice and Martin starting. Didn't rack up the stats I think you would have expected, but certainly he expected. So he's back for, uh, you know, hoping to go out on a higher note. So too is left tackle Troy Faotano, who was chosen for the All-Pac-12 second team in his first full year as a starter. Faotano actually has three years of eligibility remaining because uh, he had a red shirt and a COVID season, but also could have declared for the NFL draft because that's just where we are now is you could either stay three years or leave. Those are both options on the table. Uh, he was actually kind of one of the, the more highly regarded draft prospects, I think, among the Huskies. So kind of notable that he chose to come back. And it, and it, one of the most important positions, you look at those two, the tandem returns on the edge, and then also left tackle, like needing those positions to be solidified. I think defensively, you look at those returns and as two of the best players on this defense, that was a weak defense overall, needed needed fortifications, which we'll talk about in a second here as far as some of the transfers. But I think you have to expect some progression from the defense. Maybe you expect some regression from the offense like we talked about, but I think you have to expect this defense to get closer to near the top of the Pac-12 next year. I mean, it's year two in the system. Certainly, they'll have better health at cornerback than they did this season. Uh, that's where they, they lose Jordan Perryman, 
who was one of the handful of seniors who has exhausted eligibility. Uh, and I think definitely probably some more some more additions to come on that one. But let's talk about these several transfers who have announced they are heading to UW. That starts with wide receiver Jeremy Bernard, who was let out of his letter of intent to UW last year after wide receiver coach Junior Adams moved to Oregon. Bernard ended up signing with Michigan State, uh, where he played against UW, uh, played in all 12 games for the Spartans, recording seven catches for 128 yards and two touchdowns, but now headed back. Uh, and we'll have three years of eligibility, four years to play three at UW. And look, the possibility that someone is going to transfer back to you is not the best reason not to get upset at players for choosing another school in the recruiting process. That's mostly because it's teen- they're teenagers and it's about their life, not yours. But it is a reason to not get upset at players because it's definitely not the final word when you pick a school at this point in college. Or not sports. to be upset at anybody for almost any reason involving sports. But Most importantly, what you're talking about is what I tell my children all the time. Above all else, be cool. (laughs) I think it's hard oftentimes for college football fans to be cool. If you're a college football coach, fan, whatever, player, be cool, motherfuckers. That's it. But Kalen DeBoer was very cool about this, and it worked out. Oh, it's Kalen DeBoer's steady as could be. We talked about that on the end of year podcast about Michael Penix's demeanor, about how cool he is. You could see that it comes from Kalen DeBoer. You want to get upset at the refs every once in a while, obviously do that. But like, if you're out there in press conferences talking bad about your players or whatever, that is not cool. Or other teams' players, or the concept of NIL, any of those things, don't recommend. Yeah, be cool. Uh, next up, Cal Poly tight end Josh Cuevas, who had 57 catches for 663 yards and six touchdowns as a redshirt freshman to earn FCS Freshman All-America honors from thebluebloods.com. Cuevas played there for former Eastern head coach Bo Baldwin, who resigned after the season to take the Arizona State offensive coordinator job. Uh, He'll have three years of eligibility remaining, three years to play three. This is a position that next year, not necessarily a big need for the Huskies because they're not losing anyone at that spot. Jake Westover and and Culp will will both be back. But the year after that, then I think it could become a much bigger name. I'm excited about this one too. Uh, th- this is a position that, look, Jake Westover, Devin Culp, obviously excited about them, but adding more talent there, he is going to be on the field. And I, the vibe that I get is he's going to be an impact player pretty much right away. I mean, I, I don't know how much he'll be on the field next year because that is a tough rotation to crack. They're bringing back everyone at that spot. But at some point, I think 2024 for sure you would expect I, him to be a big time I contributor. Think next season, we're going to be talking about Josh Cuevas being a contributor. I mean, look, he might just be good enough that it, that exactly. the case. Like and that, he, that's what those I'm are saying. big time numbers at the FCS level. Also kind of interesting that he didn't follow Bo Baldwin to Arizona State. Right. Uh, Quentin Moore is the third guy in that in that tight end rotation. He had four catches last season. He'll, he will also be back for his, I think his final year of eligibility. It's so tough to keep track. Not bringing in Josh Cuevas to not throw him the ball, though. When you see those stats in this offense, they brought him here to throw him the ball. All right, we've got a couple of edges who likewise are maybe more about depth next season and then potentially bigger roles in 2023 after ZTF and Braylon Trice presumably have moved on to the NFL. Uh, Arizona State edge Joe Moore III, who played two seasons for the Sun Devils, recording three and a half sacks. He'll have two years of eligibility at UW. 
and this is a fascinating one, Sioux Falls Edge, Zach Durfee. The first example of Kalen DeBoer successfully using his South Dakota connections. There we go. Since Durfee was at his alma mater and played for former Kalen DeBoer assistant John Anderson, who was fired after the season. Uh, Durfee played one year as a redshirt freshman for the Division II Cougars, recording 11 and a half sacks and forcing a pair of fumbles to earn NSIC South Division first team honors. I thought that was a cool one too. Yeah. He he said, uh, I I think this I forget who this was to whether it was to Christian Capel or another story I saw that like he entered his name in the portal kind of thinking FCS level and then got interest at the FBS level and even at the Power Five level. So we'll see where this story leads. Yeah, I I think that again it's it's just it's depth until they play. Like ha- having somebody there who's been through it, who's played played in college football games i understand that the speed and the competition isn't quite the same but like you anticipate that if he's good enough he's going to be on the field next season you need so many different players in that position right uh but also just had more time for their like to become more experienced and to grow up a little like i think it's a i think it's a nice addition did he is he the one who played quarterback initially yes and then moved to an edge rush so you also would assume a pretty good athlete overall yep all right, next up, USC linebacker Raylan Goforth, a fifth-year senior who started regularly for USC at inside linebacker in 2021, lost out on the starting job in competition and training camp under the new coaching staff and in a new scheme last year, did regain it late in the season. He'll be in the mix for playing time at inside linebacker for UW with returning starter Afonso Tupatala, a healthy Edifuan Ulafoshio, and then Cam Bruner. That's a huge one, too. I mean, all these additions on on the defense. I think when you look at the very few losses there, just again, adding to that competition, in the Pete Carroll sense, they're going to find the best players possible during camp, which there'll probably be some more attrition at some spots. I think after the bowl game, it, but it is notable given the number of players that have left their teams ahead of bowl games and announced transfers. I, I think I saw that WSU added a Texas linebacker was interesting the other day. Like the, that very few players have done that from UW so far does seem pretty notable. All right, the last transfer edition, Long Beach City College cornerback Thaddeus Dixon, who will have three years to play two at UW. He's someone I think who could come in and potentially, I, I don't know a whole lot about his game, but given the state of that position, given that they lost Jordan Perryman, it seems very plausible that he could come in and start right away. For sure. All right, we did see one player announce a transfer away from UW. A crowd at wide receiver with the addition of Jeremy Bernard. They're also signing three wide receivers, all of whom are pretty wide, highly rated, is the anticipation they have uh, commitments from them for the early signing period. Uh, Kennedy Catholic wide receiver Junior Alexander, who transferred here from Arizona State a year ago, headed elsewhere after recording just one catch for nine yards last season. A little sad. I remember us being kind of excited when he oh, came we were on. Very excited, yeah. That he wasn't able to crack the rotation, but it just goes to show how deep the rotation is. Cam Williams, also. I don't know if we've talked about him. Yeah, he had announced that earlier that he was leaving the team. Okay. Yeah, he just announced a destination, which Georgia State, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have to be excited about the wide receiver depth, though. Like, oh yeah, all, I mean, all things, all things with the incoming class with the returning players with Jeremy Bernard coming over. This is a very, very deep wide receiver room. 
And so we still don't know about Roma Dunze. That's that's kind of the biggest lingering question from an NFL draft standpoint. It's a little interesting that he hasn't announced anything yet, but I, there's not not necessarily any hurry either. No. Unless you're going to sit out the bowl game. I think that's why a lot of players announce ahead of time. But unless you're planning on that, you don't have to decide for a little while. Was it Miles Murphy at Clemson, I think, is sitting out their bowl game? Who was on the Seahawks radar? Any player who could be on the Seahawks radar, I'm just like, yes, sit out the bowl game. <laughs> Especially if you're not playing for the college football playoff. Yeah, yes, they, they are in the Orange Bowl, and he is skipping that. We'll enter the draft. Number 10 overall pro- projected by uh, on Mel Kuyper's board. All right, well, let's talk about those Seahawks. We haven't, we've recorded the year in review pod, but we haven't done a weekly pod since their 21-13 loss last Thursday against the San Francisco 49ers that uh, I, I think... I think we can generally agree it was not even as close as that one seemingly one score final indicated. I hate all things. <laughs> that was your takeaway from being at that game. I mean, what it, what are my other takeaways going to be? Like I, it it was not, it it was a clear night. <laughs> I will say it was very nice football weather. So that's something. The 49ers fan who is next to me uh, was a nice gentleman. All the other 49ers fans who were around me weren't quite as nice. Uh, it was just, it was a pathetic display by Seahawks fans. Just showing, I mean, we have, I again, I haven't been to every single fan base around the country, but the idea that you would consider the Seahawks fan base, at least in every capacity, on the level of some of the best teams. Like, you can see it when they come to town. You know what I mean? Like, we know who the best fan bases are, because they come here and they they overwhelm the Seahawks fan base. I, I think the Seahawks overwhelm some fan bases in Arizona, in LA, in their own right. But not in, but there's tears to the shit, right? Like Seahawks fans are not going to San Francisco and overwhelming that fan base. I understand that there's I think a there lot. was a period of time where that might have happened. I've been to a San Francisco 49ers game before. It, let me tell you, the crowd was not that great for that one. No, that was not in a period where they were that good. It was but. like, like 60, 40 Seahawks fans. Literally, I did not know a person around us. Have had season tickets with the same group of people around us for, I don't know, eight years or something like that. Been in those seats. I did not know a single person around us. Everybody sold their tickets. And it was That's just like... a wild. I mean, I wonder if the fact that it was a Thursday night game affected that. You wonder if it was the fact that we have a trash fan base who can't even fucking cheer for the team. Oh Maybe man, that the, year, was why. the year I went to a Niners game was their two and fourteen season under Chip Kelly. I I still think that the amount of 49ers fans and the passion of 49ers fans is just different. It is a different fan base. Well, I and think it's fine. because of the fact that I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily about in the Bay Area, especially because of the fact that they play in I don't want to say the middle of nowhere, because Santa Clara is is a population center in its own right. It's nowhere near the city of San Francisco. I, sure, but if we want to fancy ourselves, but as... San Francisco, the Forty ers are a national team because they were very successful in the nineteen eighties. So there are people in Seattle, the area, Seattle area. Our friend Joseph, Third Belton brother Joseph. Their, na- their like, names are Anthony Ray, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Fucking <laughs> rapped about them at halftime. It was incredible. Josh Sager. Great. It was a great. Well, he was in uh, Wyoming. Uh, 
where you kind of choose between the Broncos and the Niners, but you don't choose the Seahawks. Like now you I, might, maybe like now it's more probably still Broncos. I I just I think there are people out there who fancy the Seahawks crowd as either a small and mighty or b large, and it is c none of the above. <laughs> it is just kind of a crappy fan base. Like that's it. Wow. I. I mean, I'm there, and the team is not bad. This should be the year that we rally around the team more than any, right? This is the year that if if the team is going to need a fan base to rally around them, now it doesn't help that they routinely lose at home. Uh, <laughs> the amount of winning games that I've seen at home has been very few in the last two years. But I, I just, it, it was it was a pathetic display in, in all capacities. Uh, both on the field and off the field. And and look, I think that the Seahawks, they did their best. The Niners are just better. And I, we've talked about this offline. I've talked about this a couple other times. The Niners have set up for themselves in the last couple of seasons, in the, last, the, in the Kyle Shanahan period, the perfect way to build a football team, which is you're either really good or you're really bad. And that's what the Niners have done. Obviously, they've drafted well. They've picked up players and other different, like, parts of the draft which every team does and they've gotten very 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 good pieces throughout the draft they're very good at using those pieces they have consistently great coordinators coming through the 49ers system or whatever right they constantly have coordinators offensive and defensive who are being promoted to head coaching jobs they're very good Give, at giving them additional draft picks and giving them additional draft picks like they're very good the Niners are good at a lot of shit but in the end Seeing Nick Bosa abuse our rookie left tackle through the entire game is they had the second pick of the draft. That's it. The Seahawks have not had a pick like that in forever. If there's one thing the Seahawks have been very, very bad at in the Pete Carroll area simultaneously is A, having draft picks in general, first round picks in general, and B, having high first round picks in general. So the kind of talent that you're able to build through that time period We've been spoiled by winning, and the roster just isn't quite as good. Now, could they have transformed the roster through not trading for players like Jamal Adams or whatever throughout the year, not drafting players like LJ Collier or Rashad Penny? Of course they could have. But they couldn't have drafted Nick Bosa with those picks. And that's kind of the difference to me between these two rosters, is the Niners have had so much talent ingested into their defense and the team in general that... They're probably better than the Seahawks at almost every single position. Well, not they're just a better team. Which is an interesting one. Are they I mean, better at quarterback overall, though? Well, yes. When I I think overall they are. I, they have. I mean, think. Of, I mean, that's how can that's, you really say that they're not better at quarterback though? The Seahawks have Geno Smith, who maybe statistically is looking good for the year's totality, but you know the numbers that Ben has been posting about after the Chargers game, I think it is, is where the line is. Maybe it's the Lions game. Like Geno Smith is just not, he's not that dude anymore, but he's been average. And I still think over a 32 game sample on any given team, I don't know that Brock Purdy is going to be average. If you give him the Seahawks a running game, I don't know that Brock Purdy is going to be average. I, but they also have Brock Purdy. I mean, that's playing in the moment. Geno Smith. That's, that's the that's the frightening thing, though, is this is a 49ers team that came to town minus their top two quarterbacks and their best playmaker in Debo Samuel missed this game and still outclassed the Seahawks. Like in terms of yards per play, 
They averaged 6.2. The Seahawks averaged 4.5. That was one of the 15 largest differentials in yards per play in the since Russell Wilson was drafted, which wow. is still what we consider kind of the modern Seahawks era. They beat the shit out of us. That's it. And they did it defensively. And and honestly, they did it offensively too. Brock Purdy made a lot of mistakes. Brock Purdy let them be in the game. Quantity Diggs obviously dropping the interception. Like there were avenues to the Seahawks winning the game, but in the end, their defense is so, the best unit on the field was the Niners defense, and it was not even oh, yeah. close. Yeah. And that's it. And the worst def- unit on the field was the Seahawks defense, and it wasn't even close. You you have those moments and those teams that you play every once in a while. I mean, we'll talk about this with the Jets in a couple weeks, right? Where you just look around, and every single play, you're like, how in the fuck are we going to score against this team? Yeah. Right? What are we going to do right now? Because they swarm, they move so fast. I honestly didn't even think the Niners played that good of a game defensively, all things considered. Like... It, it was a good game, but the Seahawks did thaw their defense a little bit. I thought the game planning was, for the most part, pretty fine. But the, when you can't protect, there's not a lot you can do, right? This idea of fans think it's so easy to just throw quick passes. And it's like, that's not, it's not that easy. Well, I think right? it's like the, the Seahawks defensive issue. Is it's like, well, you know, you can't stop the run. Just commit all your resources to stopping the run. Well, guess what? Then Brock Purdy starts completing passes for 8.6 yards per attempt. When you have a problem in one area on offense or defense, you have a problem everywhere. Yes. And Gino was trying to get the ball out as fast as possible. It was not any fault of Gino or even the scheme. They had clearly talked to Gino and been like, you need to get that ball out as quickly as you can. And it led to a lot of one yard completions or very, very fast incompletions. And people are less excited about those than they think they are. The The idea that there's going well, to be I mean, against a lot of, to a against a lot of teams player. that might have worked because sometimes you get worked. yards after it the catch. But against the San Francisco 49ers, yards after a catch, the catch are not a thing. Their that tackling defense. is, I've never seen anything. I, I think it was, it was above the Legion of Boom era Seahawks in terms of tackling. I'm not willing to go that far. I'm willing to go that far. But the defense is mean. The defense is so good that Demeco Ryans has no chance of getting a head coach. Oh, no. If he was an offensive candidate, it would be different. <laughs> That's I, true. That's I think true. he's going to, especially with his his old rabbi, Robert Sala, enjoying the success that, that you That's referenced the other team. Earlier. I mean, when you look at the Jets and you see how fast they move and how hard they hit, you're just like, why can't we do that? If it can be done, why can't everybody do it? It's one of those things where it seems like, like, is the Jets... But the Jets also have a shit ton of high draft picks on their defense. They do. But is the Jets' defense, on player to player, are they that much better than the Seahawks are player to player? Uh, I mean, again, how many top 10 picks Tanner have they Tanner fucking played. <laughs> played it. Significant, <laughs> important snaps in this game. I get it. Oh, boy. I mean, both of those teams, they're actually very interesting corollaries, the two teams. Obviously, the the Niners are better than the Jets are, but you do look at what the Jets are building, and it's like they had sort of the high draft pick kind of bust quarterback, and then they have, right? They're like, Mike White is out. What are we going to do? Which feels pretty Niners-ish. <laughs> they're they're going to put in the number two pick? <laughs> I don't know. That's a little different. I guess they had, their drafts have leaned pretty off, more offensive than I realized over recent seasons, but you have Quinnen Williams as the number three pick on defense, and, and obviously Sauce. Sauce Gardner is the number four pick. 
But Garrett Wilson is sort of their like their, their, type their, player, right? Their previous first round pick used on defense before that. You know who that was? I guess they did also have the 26th pick this year that they used on Jermaine Johnson the second. But before that, their their most recent first round pick used on defense. Was it Sheldon Richardson? No, more recent okay. than that. Oh. You're thinking the wrong Seahawk. It's Jamal Adams. Oh, yeah. Okay, they did use a high pick. But also because of <laughs> Leonard those... Williams was the other guy back in the day, but uh, no longer to their benefit. I mean, because of those picks they got from the Seahawks, right? They have the ability. Yeah. They were able to draft Garrett Wilson and Sauce this year. Like, that's thanks to the Seahawks. If you could drop Garrett Wilson into this team, or was it the Sauce pick? No, it was the Garrett Wilson pick. That I was mean, the Garrett the, Wilson pick. This is the thing is like people noted for a long period of time, like, oh, the Seahawks have candidates for offensive and defensive rookie of the year and Tariq Woolen and Ken Walker the third. And like that's good because of the fact that neither of those players were drafted in the first round. Although again, it's still ridiculous that Charles Cross and Abe Lucas are not the or, candidates. What, and only one of them is a good player of the candidates for rookie of the year. But the Jets are probably going to have both the offensive rookie of the year and the defensive rookie of the year this year. Oh. Like they, they have the betting favorites on both sides. Garrett Wilson has opened up a huge lead at this has point. He? Okay. Yes. Uh, what were you saying with the number two pick in the draft, though, Zach? Because well, Trey Lance was the three pick. Like, yeah, but they when when Jimmy G got hurt, they didn't go back to Trey Lance. That would sure. have been the analogy in this yeah. case. They they went back to the number two pick of the draft who played fine. But we're not previewing the Jets. We're previewing like 13 of 28. You're all right. He didn't your definition play fine. of fine is my definition of fine is that Garrett Wilson still had a decent fantasy week for me. That's that's my definition of fine. He was 18 of 35, but four 317 yards. Like okay. the completions went for a lot. Uh so the, the worst news out of the San Francisco game is injuries for the Seahawks. Brian Monet suffered an ACL tear, so his season is oh. over. Uh, Seahawks brought in a number of defensive linemen for workouts this week. Haven't yet signed any of them, but may add someone to the practice squad to elevate. Uh, Tyler Lockett underwent surgery Monday for a fractured metacarpal. Chance he's able to return for the Jets game in week 17, but definitely out this week. I like that Pete Carroll said that the surgeon said it was, quote, a perfect surgery, oh. which is never a description I've heard before. Donald like, Trump did the surgery. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a perfect, perfect surgery. Most amazing surgery I've ever seen. Uh, your, your favorite surgeon. Better than, I don't know, a famous surgeon. <laughs> Dr. Oz. God, I would assume. Just <laughs> Trump more. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, like a comment that you made the other day, you were talking about wanting to discuss in the year end uh, recap po NFL podcast, like <laughs> the importance of wide receivers. We'll see a lot about the importance of Tyler Lockett this week, I guess, hopefully just this week and not the next couple of weeks, because, you know, the Seahawks offense has been doing what it's been doing with two elite wide receivers. And there's a pretty steep drop off after those two. I still like Marquise Goodwin, for what it's worth. No, Goodwin has played extremely well for the season for a veteran free agent signed for the minimum. But if he's your number two, and who is your number three? Penny Hart. D. Eskridge not likely to make it back. It's Penny Hart. Hart's, Hart's still dealing with injuries, right? He played last week. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they have to have more receivers. Like, I don't... That's part of what we were talking about, about... Do you the, need to draft a receiver? 
or yeah. the, the, but the attrition of the roster. Also, yeah. yeah, I mean, the Niners well, that, I mean, that's a, Debo wasn't a first-round pick. Ayuk was. Wait, Debo, Debo was, wasn't he? No, I'm pretty sure he was a second-round pick. Well, I mean, the Seahawks did use a second-round pick on receiver. Unfortunately, D. Eskridge has struggled to stay healthy and contribute when he has been healthy. Also wanted to note, DVOA now rates the Seahawks defense 25th which would be worse than it's been since Pete Carroll's first season in Seattle. But I, I think the other thing about, so Debo is pick 36, is the other thing that I've talked a lot about being bad, is it's not just that you get to have that pick early. They got to draft Nick Bosa and Debo Samuel in that same draft. That's why it's a good thing the Seahawks have both of the Broncos, both the Broncos first and second round picks, although yes. not quite as appealing looking as they were entering Sunday before the Broncos beat the Cardinals and all the other teams in that range lost. It's not a good day for the Seahawks or the, for the Seahawks draft pick, not a good weekend for either of those things. All right, let's talk the the receiver draft, just freaking monster, right? I know people have talked about this to death, but like it is you have AJ Brown in the second round, AJ Brown, DK, uh, and Debo. And then, you have Seahawks legend JJ Arthago Whiteside <laughs> and McCole Hardman, Andy Isabella. McCole Hardman might be back this week. So let's talk about the Chiefs. It's a big game for them because they are battling Buffalo and Cincinnati for the top seed in the AFC. Both of those teams beat the Chiefs head to head, giving the Bills the lone bye if the season ended today with the Chiefs as the number two seed, Cincinnati a game back in third. Aside from those two losses, Kansas City has just one loss all season that coming at Indianapolis back in September, but been a little shaky lately. They held on to beat Denver 34-28 in week 14 after opening up a 27-0 lead in that game, then needed overtime to beat the Texans in Houston last Sunday. Unsurprisingly, the problem is not the offense, which leads the NFL and DVOA. That would actually be the first time the Chiefs did so since 2018. Oh, I thought you were going to say a lot longer ago than that. <laughs> well, no, but like they've had the best overall offense in the NFL in that time. They've never been lower than third in DVOA, but they haven't led it in since 2018. Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, number one by a mile in EPA per play, QBR, and Football Outsiders DR volume stat, despite the loss of Tyreek Hill to the offseason trade to the Dolphins. Uh, without him, maybe the deepest group of receivers the Chiefs have had with the additions of Juju Smith-Schuster, Marquez Volga's Stantling, and more recently, Kadarius Tony. Smith-Schuster, Valdez Scantling, and leading receiver Travis Kelsey are all averaging at least nine yards per target. No other team this season has more than two players at nine yards per target or better in at least 50 targets. Chiefs running game only average overall, but seventh round pick Isaiah Pacheco has been more effective than that since supplanting Clyde Edwards-Elair as the primary running back. Andy Reid told reporters that Edwards-Elair won't return from IR this week as he rehabs a high ankle sprain. Oh, and Jarek McKinnon has been super important in the passing game as well. Yeah, although not actually all that efficient in the passing game in terms of yards per target. I mean, high catch rate. The sticking point for the Chiefs is since they won the Super Bowl in 2019 remains defense, which is ranked in the 20s in DVOA each of the last three seasons. They're 25th in pass defense DVOA. Uh, first round pick from UW, Trent McDuffie, has started all eight games he's played at cornerback after coming back from a week on one injury. 
but has not, alas, solved the problem. The Chiefs get great interior pressure from Chris Jones, whose 11 sacks are tied with Quinnen Williams for the most by any non-edge rusher in the league, but just nine combined this season from former Seahawks edges Frank Clark and Carlos Dunlap. Wow. All Seahawk edge. Yes. Uh, technically, Dunlap isn't starting. Their second-round pick, George Karloftis second is starting opposite Clark, but Dunlap, I think, plays more in obvious pass rush situations. My last note on this one, the forecast. Mm-hmm. 11 degrees at kickoff, oh, according to the most recent weather underground forecast with a high of 16. As my colleague Brady Henderson pointed out, that would make this potentially the second coldest game the Seahawks have ever played, warmer only than the 2016 wildcard win in Minnesota. What, uh, what is the or, start I said time for Sunday, it's Saturday. Uh, that will be 12 noon central time. 10 a.m. Pacific. <laughs> you had to do the math on that. There's only two options. I know. It wasn't going to be later here than it was in, in Kansas City. Uh, yeah, I, it's an interesting one. Obviously, like, you know, the chance of the Seahawks winning this game are very, very small. But football power index gives them a 13% chance to win. The Chiefs are nine and a half point favorites. As we talked about a week ago with the matchup against the 49ers being especially bad. Yes, in terms of the Seahawks' weaknesses of run defense and their complete inability to run the ball against a team that is very good defensively and very good, well, likes to run and is very good at setting you up with the run. The Chiefs are a little bit better of a matchup. The thing that scares me the most, though, is the injury to Tyler Lockett. And I think the thing that scares me the most is Patrick Mahomes. Well, like, obviously, but as far as I think their chances of victory go down a solid 10% without Tyler Lockett. Like, you're going to have to win a high-scoring game against the Chiefs. That's the way you do it. And get lucky a few times. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what it boils down to. But the I feel like I have a weirdly good feeling about this game. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they covered that's a pretty enormous spread for a team that's only won by more than nine and a half points once in the last five weeks. But that's not what we do percentage chances of victory about. We don't do percentage chance of cover. We don't do we don't, percentage. We do sorry, percentage. I, I was reading a tweet. I wanted to see if it's real. <laughs> uh, the good news about having low expectations for this game is that the Seahawks cannot ruin or Christmas Eve by losing this game. Like if they were playing at home against the the Cardinals, it would be a totally different situation altogether. Have you have you figured out this tweet? I'm not. Uh, I oh, figured right. it out. But uh, you're saying that they can't ruin our Christmas Eve with this? Yes. Because we have no expectations? Yes. What is the Pelton Cast Golden Rule? You don't know how you're going to feel about things until they happen. All right. Be, pre- be prepared to have your Christmas Eve ruined, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, wow. Look, my Christmas Eve could be ruined. It's going to be ruined by fantasy football. If Devontae Adams has a bad game on the Christmas Eve night game against Pittsburgh, that could be a tough scene. I kind of sulked when we were making the ravioli on Sunday because of Devontae Adams. Fortunately, my team did not need a big Devontae Adams game to win. If I'd won, if I'd won, I'd be in the fucking playoffs in both leagues. I am 
in the playoffs in both leagues for well, a second consecutive season. Great. At least this year, I don't have to take your honorary uh, Champions League spot. That's true. Uh, we'll see who gets the honorary spot. But uh, let me tell you, Zach Whitman is looking like a very formidable foe in that that league in the first round of the playoffs. It's a one-game fantasy playoffs. You never it know. is. It is. But I'm going to need a monster Devontae Adams game. Sometimes you might implore them to let Russ cook, and that might backfire. <laughs> uh Anyway, I I think the Seahawks are going to score in this game. And I I just have a feeling that it's going to be a close one. Given the, how the Seahawks offense has been able to move the ball against teams that are pretty bad defensive teams, and they don't get the kind of pass rush. That, there's not a player like Max Crosby or something on the Chiefs. You know, I, I don't think we could give Chris, Chris Jones and Frank Clark that kind of credit that's going to absolutely destroy the Seahawks O-line. I... I I just feel like they're going to score points and it's going to come down to a couple of possessions and whether the Seahawks get fumble luck or turnover luck or penalty luck or whatever, and that's going to change the game. The one thing I wonder about is the degree to which the weather suppresses scoring. Like it's usually wind that's more associated with not scoring, but once you get to a certain degree of cold, Especially a degree of cold, although the Seahawks are going to, if they practice outside this week, they're not actually going to be that far off on Thursday if they practice. Uh, it, it still, I think, does, like you watch those, some of those games last Saturday with the terrible weather and it's like, how are these teams possibly going to score? And we definitely saw it, obviously, the coldest game in franchise history in Minnesota, where for both teams, it was just a dismal. A that was a lot colder, but. You know, it affects everybody. Like, I I don't, I just don't think that's going to be a factor. I really think the Seahawks are going to score in this game. I think they're going to score 30 plus points. Well, so when you go back to that, who's starting Ken Walker the third and Gino Smith, Gino Smith together on my fantasy team. Let's hope so. I don't know about Ken Walker, but I think Gino's going to have a good game. And I, I feel like, I don't know, what would this line say? Very, very low percentage chance for a victory. But I think it's like a 31% chance of victory. Oh, wow. That is way too optimistic. I'm going to say, I am going to say higher than FPI. I think it's more like 20% just because of the way the Chiefs have been playing lately. And I mean, one of the things I we haven't really gotten into is how well will they run the ball with Pacheco? Like, obviously, that's not the strength of their game. But they if they have a lot of success there, then all of a sudden, the Seahawks have very little chance of stopping them. Not too worried about. It. Okay. Did the did the Niners actually run the ball that well? No, but that's my point. Is I think the Seahawks were so sold out against the Niners' run that that's what created the opportunities for Brock Purdy to have the success that he had. Until They're the 49ers got uber conservative in the second half and started punting from midfield. God, I I'm not that worried about that piece. I mean, Mahomes is going to score. Like I don't. The Chiefs are going to move the ball, but is I, Isaiah Pacheco the one that we're concerned with for the Chiefs? I, the Seahawks were without Shelby Harris in the game that they got run over by the Panthers, right? Like they were without Al Woods. It's a different team that's out there than that game. Just saying, and, okay. and I don't They've think bad we know run defense for like seven weeks here. So I don't know if that's the issue. <laughs> Years. We know how coaches approach games. We've seen it on hard knocks. Coaches are very simple to a, a lot of extent with how they approach these things. And they're going to say, stop Mahomes. Yeah, that might be the case. And I think they'll defend the run fine. I'm not 
I'm not going to go into a Chiefs game and say Isaiah Pacheco is going to be the one that's going to kill the Seahawks. It's probably going to be Mahomes and Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm just saying, if you can't stop Isaiah Pacheco, then you're in deep trouble. Well, guess what? The Seahawks are in deep trouble. They lost to the fucking Raiders at home and the Panthers at home. <laughs> like, they are they had one of the 15 worst yard discrepancies in the Russell Wilson era last week. Like, I don't... They are what they are. I think that's a good note to go out on. The Seahawks are in trouble. With that... Happy holidays to everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas to uh, everyone. And we will be back next week with our final pod of 2022, previewing the Alamo Bowl, talking about the Seahawks against the Jets. We'll actually preview the Jets when they're playing the Jets as opposed to when they're playing the Chiefs. Should be, hopefully it'll be fun. I don't know if I want to guarantee fun. No, absolutely not. Thanks for listening. Thanks.